The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Well, hello, hello, hello. Hey, Genesis, how are you? Good, good to hear. I'm good. Thanks for asking. I appreciate that. Uh, my name's Michael, and um, I am uh, really glad you are here. Uh, you probably shouldn't be. You should be at home somewhere with your mom, taking her out for dinner. So you will do that after uh, service tonight if you've not done that yet. If you are a mom, uh, please stand up if you would. Even if it's like your first time ever being here, be uh, if you're a mom, please stand up. Okay, we've got to have more moms than that, right? All right, hey, well, don't, don't sit down yet. Don't sit down. So even though it's, uh, we have some other moms, kind of like come forward. Liz, I think I see you in the back over there. There you are. Um, it was really cool. My mom is an awesome lady, so much so that I was Facebooking her last night. And the fact that my mom, I won't reveal her age because she listens to these things. Um, she's, say, 35. Um, I uh, wrote on my mom's wall last night, um, Mom, uh, happy Mother's Day. Um, I forget what I said next, but I said, Mom, thanks for uh, showing me uh, what it looks like to love Jesus and to love people. Uh, my mom had a significant uh, influence, impact on my life, and uh, I really uh, give thanks to her. Uh, if you would have known me in high school, uh, in early and even early college years, uh, I know it's hard to believe, but I was a total punk. I, uh, maybe it's not so hard to believe. Um, but uh, my mom was just uh, relentless and faithful uh, in praying for me and loving me, and uh, not in an obnoxious way, uh, but in a way that uh, just let me know that she really cared, that she really loved me, and that uh, she really modeled for me what it looked like to love Jesus and to uh, love people. So, I know you've already sat down, but would you stand back up again? Um, moms, I wanted to uh, pray for you and say thank you uh, for being moms. Uh, it is um, an incredible responsibility. It's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible gift to be able to speak into, to be able to love and encourage uh, the children that God has blessed you with. Uh, so I, I just wanted to say thanks on behalf of just Genesis and Maybe your kids are here, maybe they're not, but uh, just let you know that you uh, have the opportunity and probably have uh, uh, to impact uh, your kids, whether your kids are one, two, three, four, five years old, or 20 years old, or older than that. Um, I just wanted to give thanks and let you know that uh, you are appreciated uh, for what you do and for who you are. Now, I have worked this out with your husbands. What we are doing is giving you a gift. Uh, we didn't want to give you a gift of a flower because it will be dead tomorrow, and you're worth more than just a 24-hour long flower. Uh, so what we did is we got you a gift card to Starbucks. So uh, your husbands already know this, wink, um, that uh, they're going to give you time sometime this week uh, to just go to Starbucks, grab a coffee, enjoy some time of just reading, relaxing, journaling, whatever you're able to do uh, just to kind of unwind and relax. So uh, if you didn't get a card yet, raise your hand 
and uh, I'll make sure uh, the men here will uh, pass it along to you. Uh, Brandon, you are not a mom. I apologize. Uh, we'll talk about that after service. Let me uh, pray for the moms, and if you would just join me in uh, uh, even just praying a blessing on your mom and praying for the moms that are here. God, I give thanks for um, the gift of my mom, uh, for the impact that uh, she had and still continues to have on my life, uh, that she taught me about Jesus, she showed me Jesus, and uh, she modeled for me what it looks like to uh, love Jesus and love people. God, I give thanks for the moms that are here tonight and even the moms that could not be here tonight. I give you thanks for the incredible gift and privilege and responsibility of what it means just to be a mom. And I pray that the moms that are here uh, would feel absolutely loved by you, loved by their families, uh, their husbands, and their kids. Um, so God, I just pray blessing on them. I pray that you would encourage the moms that are here uh, to continue pressing into loving Jesus with all of their hearts and loving people so that they would pass on a legacy to their children, uh, whether old or young, um, uh, what it looks like to be a mom who is filled with grace, filled with compassion, filled with love for Jesus and a love for people. So please, just bless the moms that are here. We give you thanks for them, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mom, thanks for being here tonight. I know that you could probably be uh, somewhere else, but uh, I'm glad that you chose to come here. If nothing else, you just got a $5 gift card to Starbucks, so enjoy it, and uh, know that when you have that cup of coffee that you are absolutely loved and appreciated. Uh, tonight, we are going to continue, um, I think this is week 21. Um, I think when I planned and plotted out this um, series uh, last fall, it was actually going to last about 14 weeks, so we're only in chapter 9, and there's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, so we're going to continue plugging away. Uh, if you are new to Genesis, uh, we keep it uh, pretty simple in terms of we just we walk through the story of Scripture, and sometimes we go verse by verse, sometimes paragraph by paragraph, but we stick as closely as we can to the story uh, that God wrote down for us so that we would understand Him uh, through His Scripture. Uh, tonight, um, I'm going to be uh, wrestling with and invite you to wrestle with me, so to speak, uh, over an issue of greatness. I want to plant the seed of the question, at least, of what does it mean, uh, what does it look like uh, to be great? Just a very simple uh, search uh, of looking for some different things online. It's amazing if you go to something like Amazon and just type in greatness and the books that come up, there's like 150,000 books that talk about greatness and how to achieve greatness and what greatness looks like. And uh, we're a culture relatively assumed with greatness, we're achieving greatness. Greatness being nothing, uh, greatness be nothing unless it be lasting. Napoleon said that. When you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. Anyone want to take a guess who said that? He's an athlete, of course. No, not Dennis Rodman. Muhammad Ali, did someone say that? When you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. There are countless ways of attaining greatness, but any road to reaching one's maximum potential must be built on a bedrock of respect for the individual, a commitment to excellence, and a rejection of mediocrity. Buck Rogers, not the space guy. Uh, he's a baseball player, actually. 
the greatest, uh, or let me uh, do this one, forget about likes and dislikes. They are of no consequence. Just do what must be done. This may not be happiness, but it is greatness. George Bernard Shaw said that. True greatness consists in the use of a powerful understanding to enlighten oneself and others. Voltaire said that. I always knew I was destined for greatness. Give you a hint. She is on TV around 3, 4 o'clock every afternoon on ABC, I think. As human beings, our greatness lies not so much in being able to remake the world as in being able to remake ourselves. Greatness, Gandhi said that, greatness lies not in being strong, but in the right using of strength. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some hire public relations officers. thought that one was good. T.S. Eliot said this, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be great. I thought that was very insightful. Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be great. I am convinced that nothing will happen to me, for I know the greatness of the task for which providence has chosen me. Adolf Hitler said that. Jesus said this, if anyone wants to be first, meaning great, he must be the very last. He must be the very last and the servant to all. How would you, just giving you a few definitions of greatness, so how would you define greatness? What words, adjectives uh, would you use to describe what it means to be great. Now, I know we probably don't want to admit it, uh, and that's okay, but I'm guessing that most of us would think of words, things like power and prestige and influence or affluence, fame, fortune, success, influence. We think of words like that to describe what it means to be great. Let me ask, when you even hear the word greatness, who do you think of? What people, either known or unknown, do you actually think of? I say great or greatness, and you think of who? Now, get the person or the people, whether it's just one or a few in your mind. And what's interesting is, let me ask you, why are you thinking about those people? Because the people, at some level, you have in your mind this person or that person, and you have already defined greatness, you're using them as a measuring stick, a measuring rod, so to speak, for what greatness is. So why did you pick them? Was it something about their personality, their accomplishments? Was it something about the influence that they've had, the successes that they've had? Was it something about, I don't know, their bank account, their career, the degrees, what was it about that individual or individuals that you attain greatness to them? What Jesus is going to do for us tonight is redefine or redirect how we think about greatness. 
and what does it mean to be great. What's interesting is he doesn't criticize or condemn, as we'll see, these disciples who are fighting over and arguing over who is going to be the greatest. What he does is he teaches them, he sits them down, and he teaches them this is what it means to be great. If you want to be great, and then he redefines greatness. And tonight, if you catch something, I hope that you would walk out these doors into your world, meaning the people that you have the opportunity to love and serve and engage and impact with a fresh biblical understanding, a Jesus understanding of what it actually means to be great. Because I guarantee Jesus's definition of what it means to be great is far different than how the culture around us defines greatness. As uh, we open God's Word, I just wanted to, uh, to pray and uh, pray that God would open our hearts and minds to receive and respond to what He would have to say to you, say to me in this place. Jesus, you are great. There is no one who is like you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you tonight, through your story, through the Scriptures, you would speak. Your voice would be so clear. It would be so clear. Lord Jesus, I know that everyone in this place tonight is in a different place, struggling with different things and thinking through different things at different parts of our journey spiritually. But Jesus, I know and I believe that uh, you can engage every single human heart and mind that is in this place tonight, no matter where they are. So, Father God, would you please open our eyes and open our heart to receive anything and everything that you would have to say to us in this place tonight. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be um, in Mark chapter 9. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. Now, if you remember last week, um, a few of the disciples uh, had this amazing encounter with Jesus on top of the mountain. And they saw him uh, transformed. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And the challenge, the charge that uh, Derek brought to us last week was uh, awesome. He just kept hitting again and again and again on listen to him. And so fresh off of this encounter with Jesus and God on top of the mountain, they're hearing God say, this is my son, listen to him. And so you would think fresh on the disciples' minds is, man, pretty much whatever he says, no matter what he says, we're going to listen. Why? Because God just spoke and God said, listen to him. And so what's phenomenal about what Jesus is about to say is very transformational of how these men would move forward and who they are in terms of their character. Mark 9, uh, starting in verse 30 and 32, says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Mark keeps making clear. This is now numerous times Mark has said, uh, record what Jesus is saying, that he is going to suffer. 
He is going to suffer at the hands of men. This is not the first time the disciples have heard this, but what is new is betrayed. This is the first time Mark introduces something that Jesus will endure on his road to suffering, that he will be betrayed. And it's interesting, the disciples, they're like, I don't get it. I'm not bothering to ask any questions. Like, it's way over my head. Now, I'm thinking, I'm guessing they're probably silenced and choosing not to ask Jesus what he's talking about. Because the last time Peter spoke up and said, absolutely not, that will never happen to you. We'll protect you. We got your back. Jesus was like, Satan, get behind me. So I'm thinking Peter, along with the other disciples, are like, let's just not say anything. It's safer that way. But Mark records that they didn't understand. They've been with Jesus now for about two and a half years. And I'm starting to wonder, what is it that they're not understanding about Jesus? Jesus continues to reveal himself as the Son of Man, and that the Son of Man has come to suffer and to serve and to save. And they still don't get it. They still don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus will do. They don't understand. Mark has given us insight as to why. and He keeps repeating again, Jesus says, you guys have hard hearts. They wanted Jesus to be a savior, but not a savior of their soul, a savior from the political oppression that they were facing under Roman rule. They did not, they wanted a certain type of Jesus, not the type of Jesus that kept revealing himself. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. Now, one would think that of all of the questions that the disciples would be asking, like, who's going to betray him? Like, who would do that? Who's going to kill him? And why on earth would anyone kill Jesus? Look what he's done. And what is he talking about that he's going to be raised back to life? Those are legit questions. You would think those were the questions that they would be asking. But as soon as Jesus says that, they begin to travel and along the road to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to suffer, be betrayed, killed, they start asking a different question. Actually, one question. The one question that they ask is they're fighting amongst themselves over who's going to be the greatest. It's almost as if they're like, Jesus, we, okay, whatever. We, we don't understand, but you keep telling us you're going to suffer. Now you're going to be betrayed. You're going to be killed, and you're going to be raised. You would think that would have some impact, profound impact on their life. But it's almost just over top of their head, and the disciples are like, all right, let's figure this out. What will be the pecking order behind Jesus? Who is going to be first most important? Mark chapter 9, verse 33, 34, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about? Like they were, this conversation, this question was leading them to fight. What were you arguing about on the road? But again, they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest? I imagine they're like, oh, man, busted. Who's going to answer that question? Peter, why don't you go ahead? You're the leader of the pack. But again, they are completely silenced. And Jesus, just so you know, is not asking because he doesn't know what they were talking about. He's asking a question to bring about conviction. And it worked. They were silenced. 
Have you ever had a fight with someone, whether it's your wife or your husband, boyfriend or girlfriend, just your friend, and someone comes in and sees that you've been fighting? They're like, man, what's, what's going on with you? And you just feel so stupid because if you actually tell them what the argument was over, they're going to look at you and be like, are you serious? You're actually fighting about that? Husbands and wives probably have seen this. I've never seen it in my marriage. So um, other people, I imagine, it's happened many times when someone comes into the house and Kyle and I have been having a discussion, and it's obvious that there's something going on. Like, what's going on with you guys? And we're so embarrassed to even tell them how petty it is what we're actually fighting about. I imagine this is exactly how the disciples are feeling at this point in time. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to suffer, and they're walking behind him, arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Now, as I was thinking about this, I realized we're probably not having open conversations, walking along the road, talking amongst ourselves, like, so, who do you think is going to be the greatest? It's going to be me? It's going to be you? It's going to be this person? You might not have that openness of conversation, but how many of us in the privacy of our thoughts are thinking that? How many of us in our thoughts are desiring that, wanting to be the greatest, wanting to be first, wanting to be recognized, wanting to be noticed, wanting to be appreciated, wanting to be esteemed by others? You might not verbalize it. I might not verbalize it. But how many of us in our, in our heads, in our hearts, are actually having that same discussion that these guys were having very public? So let me just put it out there. Do you want to be great? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would venture to say most, if not all of us, have at some point said, I, I want that. I want that greatness. However you have defined greatness, by the way. And just out of curiosity, what would you do with it? Say you you'd attain greatness. What would you do with your greatness? Say you actually get it. You're recognized as a great one. What would you actually do amongst your greatness? Do you think that you actually would use your greatness to serve and make sacrifices for others? Or do you think in your greatness, you would demand that others are now serving you and making sacrifices for you or even making sacrifices to you? A lot of us desire these things, the greatness and to be recognized, to be first. But we never go beyond that thought to think, what would I actually be like if that was me? So what would you do with the greatness that you had? Now, Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, he does not condemn them. He does not even criticize them for asking that question of who is the greatest. What he does is he sits the group down, and he sits down himself, takes the posture of a teacher, and he redirects and he redefines for them what it means to be great. Matthew or Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, These are powerful words that Jesus is speaking. If anyone wants to be first, 
If that's you, if you want to be first, listen to the redefinition of what it means to be first. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. He must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, before I move on, just sit with that for a second. How does that resonate just immediately in your heart and your head? You want to be first, be very last, and be a servant of all. How does that resonate with you? Is that okay with you? Do you already not like that definition, that direction that Jesus is taking us in. He's telling his disciples, greatness does not look like being first, being most recognized. It's not seen in prominence amongst the people. Very last and servant to all. Two words, if you can remember these, that Jesus is using to redefine greatness. One is position and one is posture. Our position being very last. That's your position. Now, it's more than just like the person who stands at the door and lets everyone else go out before them. Like, ah, I've got greatness. I'm the last one out the door. This is an actual, it's about your position. And Jesus will help us understand what it actually means to be a person who is very last. I thought it would be helpful to, uh, this will not be up on the screen, but I just wanted to read to you. What does it actually, practically speaking, look like to be last? This is in Philippians chapter 2. It says, do nothing, just listen to these words, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude, which directs how you live, should look exactly like Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it look like to be last? your position. Paul is really echoing into what he knows of Jesus. He was humble. He took the position of a servant. Now, as I read in Philippians, being last does not mean that you don't care about yourself. It said that you look to the concerns of others as you look to the concerns of yourself. So this does not mean that you just live a life where you ignore yourself. You don't care about yourself. But being very last means that's not the only thing you care about. Meaning we care about other people. Meaning 
being last is you're not consumed with place or power, prestige, being noticed, being recognized. Ultimately, being last means you're not consumed with yourself. You have a category for others. So many of us are consumed with ourselves. Let's be honest. So much of our life is just self-driven, self-focused, self-sufficient. Self, you put that word in front of so much. If you're going to be great, it says you must change your position from wanting to be first to being last. Now, those who long, like have a just a deep-seated desire to be first, I really think that's just enslavement. You are trapped by that desire, and everything in your life is driven by that desire. There's not freedom in that desire, but those who are not concerned or consumed with being first, they just live free. Why? Because I'm just not consumed and worried about if someone else is ahead of me. I'm not consumed and worried about if someone else is achieving something that I'm not. I'm not consumed and worried and anxious and freaking out about things that I see other people accomplishing, but I'm not. Why? Because it doesn't matter to me. I'm not consumed with greatness being found in being first. To those who have that desire to be first, you are enslaved by that. It's not freedom. Freedom is found in your position, changing from being first to being very last. Now, the obvious question is how, practically speaking, uh, do you live in such a way that you're very last? Jesus answers that question when he says, you take your position of being first, change it to be very last, and then you become a servant to all. I want you to catch this because this is big. A servant to all, all encompasses anyone and everyone, meaning there is no one on this planet of 6.5 billion people that we would not see ourselves being a servant to. Let me ask this question. You have position, first to last, posture of being a servant to all. Now, participate here with me. How many people have at least served at one point once in your life? Just once. Okay, I'm not seeing everyone's hand go up. I mean, there has to be, at, right? That's 100%. At some point in your life, in your existence, I'm guessing there has to be a time where you served. Why did you serve? Whether it was once or whether you do it 10 times, done it a 1,000 times. Why do you serve? Is it because there was a need, and so you decided to meet that need? Is it because someone asked you, can you help with this? We need whatever the need might be. Is it because there was something in it for you that if you did this service, you would gain some benefit? Maybe your position would change? Or you just felt good about yourself? Why did you serve? Now, understanding why you serve will actually make a huge difference in whether or not you will be a servant. And I want you to catch this. There is a difference in serving and being a servant. Not everyone who serves is a servant. Jesus did not say serve. He said be a servant to all. I know personally, and I've I've seen this in my own life, and I see it a lot. There are people who serve, but they're not servants. They haven't taken that position. And if you're a person who just serves, 
but it's not really truly a servant, the why becomes very important. Because what happens when there's not a need? What happens when no one asks? What happens when it just doesn't feel good anymore? It's actually kind of a pain in the butt. Well, you stop serving. Why? Because you're not, you weren't a servant. I, I know I'm probably repeating myself with this, but I want you to catch there's a tremendous difference in someone who serves and someone who is a servant. Jesus is saying, change your position from first to last and take on the posture of not one who serves, but one who is a servant. And one who is a servant serves. It doesn't matter when or where or with who, it's because that's who you are. You're a servant, meaning not when it's convenient, not when it's even needed. It's that's who you are. That's what comes from you. From first to last, and your posture is that of who is a servant. As you sit here tonight, be honest with yourself. What are you? Are you one who serves or are you a servant? I hope you're catching the distinction because it's a big one. Not everyone who serves is a servant, but everyone who is a servant serves. Which one are you? And as you even think about that, I'm not talking about what you'd like to be by next week, by next year. As you sit here tonight, are you one who just serves or are you taking on the position of a servant? Because to be like Christ, and if you're a Christian, you've made that decision to follow Jesus, we follow Jesus, meaning we be like Christ. And Christ was a servant, therefore he served. He did not serve because it was convenient, there was a need, he was asked to, because it felt good. He served because he was a servant. Which one do you even want to be? Because the life of a servant looks very different than one who just serves. If you're going to be like Christ, you take on the position and the posture of one who is first and one who is a servant to all. Now, I'm going to go through this uh, pretty quick. But Jesus begins in the, the next few verses, he makes it very practical for us. And I'm literally probably going to try to fly through this in the next 10 minutes. Three questions in literally probably the next 10, 12 verses that come up at a very practical level. Who do we serve? Can anyone do it? Meaning, can anyone be a servant and serve? And what responsibility do we have to those we serve? Mark chapter 9, 36, 37 answers the first question. Who do we serve? He took a little child and he had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Who do we serve? As way of illustration, Jesus grabs the least, most insignificant person in culture society of that day, a child. They had no rights. They had no privileges. It wasn't like kids were, oh, they're so cute. No, it was like, you're a pain, you're a burden. Until you can start earning your own keep, stay out of the way. 
He took the most insignificant person, individual, being a child, grabbed hold of him as a way to exemplify to us who it is we serve are the least likely, the most insignificant. And so I'll just jump to the question, who are the children in your life? Who are the people in your life that are not noticed by anyone else, who are not even deemed significant? Why? Because they're not great. They don't have power or influence or prestige. Now, don't let your mind jump immediately to, well, I got to go down to the homeless shelter to meet that guy, to meet that woman. Who in your world, in your life, is the child? That is the person that Jesus is calling you to be a servant, not serve, be a servant to. Those who are considered absolutely insignificant, marginalized by society. If I can, just make it very practical, uh, because I know anytime you talk about servants starting to serve, you start thinking about like the shelters or the soup kitchens or other things. There's a need, there's a time, there's a place for that. But I want to challenge you to be a servant where you are, where you live, where you work, in your community. Start serving because you're a servant. That's what you do. That's who you are right where you are. Sometimes it's so, it's easier to go to a shelter, put in my three hours put in my eight hours, but then where I live, where I work, where I play, where I socialize, I don't have the mentality of a servant. I really learned this one in, in uh, college. I remember my roommate, I used to get so frustrated with him because I'm not like a neat freak, but he was a slob, and the kitchen like drove me nuts. He would, like after a week, of his dishes and his pots and all his mess, they just kept accumulating. And it was just a nightmare. And I remember one of my roommates, I'm like, I'm not going to clean them. I'm tired of cleaning them. I clean them because after like two weeks and there's cockroaches and it's nasty. I'm like, forget it. I'll just clean it. Months and months and months and months. And I kept getting so frustrated, so bitter. And one of my roommates came up to me and said, dude, what's your deal? And I'm like, I'm so sick of him not cleaning up after himself. And his question was, why don't you do it? Why don't I do it? I'll give you 10 good reasons why I won't do it. It's not my mess. It's not my mess. It's not my mess. And I could give him seven more. And my roommate just looked at me with just very compassionate eyes and just said, why don't you serve him? And I had a transformational moment there, so to speak, of saying, you know what, rather than being all bitter and jaded with the person who I live with because I don't think he's doing his thing, why don't I just start serving him? Now, my argument at the time was, well, I'm just going to enable him if I continue to do this. But actually what happened was began to inspire him as I saw him start to serve other people. That's what happens when you start serving people around you. Who in your life right now is the child that is crying out to be served, that God's calling you to go and serve, to bless and to love, to pay attention to. 
It could be right in your own home. It could be your roommate. It could be your spouse. It could be the person that you work with day in and day out that you just don't even pay attention to. It's never crossed your mind to serve them. Have you thought of ever making someone else's job easier by serving them? What impact, influence would we have as servants who began to serve right where you are, right where you live, starting tomorrow? The first question then, who do we serve? The least likely, the children, the insignificant, the neglected, the ignored, the marginalized. Those who are right in your world begin to serve them. Second question is, can anyone do it? Mark 9, 38. Disciples are in this situation. says, teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. It was like, he's not on our team. He can't do that. He can't serve. He's like calling on your name, Jesus, and we got the copyright on your name. Like, how dare anyone else use the name of Jesus? What's really interesting is these guys were all, they could not, in the story previous last week, they could not cast out the demon to save their life. But now when they see someone who's successfully doing it, they're like, cut it out. Stop. You're not on our team. It's just reserved for the 12 of us. We're the experts, even though we're not that good at it. Jesus' response to them, by the way, when the disciples said stop, what do you think the guy who was serving was thinking? Like, why would I stop? People are being cared for. People are being set free. And can you imagine the person who was possessed by the demon? Please do not tell him to stop. The disciples could not handle that someone using the name of Jesus and successfully casting out demons. And so Jesus says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. He goes on to say, tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Jesus says, do not stop someone else from serving. If they're serving in my name, they can't in one moment be talking about Jesus and then in the next moment be like cursing Jesus. How do you deal with with, uh, someone else's successes? Do you celebrate it or do you criticize and try to stop it? Because this is what is happening here. They didn't have success, but they saw someone else in Jesus' name having success, and they were like, we got to stop it. Rather than celebrating that God was doing something with someone else, impacting someone else, serving someone else, they said, we got to stop this. This is, you know, anarchy will break out if someone besides the 12 of us actually starts doing ministry. Jesus says, do not stop. The third question And this is where Jesus really takes, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone and it was pretty lighthearted, and then out of nowhere, it kind of switched to like, wow, this just got really heavy. This is what happens with Jesus. What responsibility do we have to those that we serve? And Jesus is going to give his disciples some warnings to pay attention to. 
First one, Mark 9, chapter 40, verse 42 says, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, I want you to listen to this. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. That's Jesus' way of saying, I care about humanity. And if you, as a Christian, a Christ follower, a servant of God, is ever to lead someone astray, lead someone far away from God, it would be better for you to have a millstone, a huge rock, tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. You would rather drown and die a painful death than ever lead someone else astray. And as I examine my life, and I challenge you to examine yours, right now as you sit here today, is your life one that is actually leading people towards Jesus or leading people away, leading people astray? How do you lead people astray? By how you live. Your actions, your attitudes, your speech, verbal, nonverbal, your behavior, your responses, how you live will either lead people to the gospel, to Jesus, or it will lead them astray. If you are a person who is leading people astray by the way that you live, Jesus gives a very stern warning. Don't do it. Don't do it. You would be better off to be drowned than ever lead someone Away, And you can already notice it happened with the disciples. They were beginning to lead people astray when they said, don't do the work of setting someone free. That's not your job. That's our job. And Jesus saw that they were beginning to lead people astray, and he gives them a stern warning. Do not lead people astray. Now, we'll finish with uh, the last part of these few verses And this is where it gets even more challenging. Because you have to confront yourself with a question, what is it that would actually cause me to lead people astray? And Jesus says it's the sin that lives within you. And if you do not deal with the sin that is within you, your sin will lead people astray. These are some tough verses that Jesus says to his disciples, consequently us. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I'll give you a hint real quickly. Jesus is not physically telling people to cut off their arms, their feet, pluck out their eyes. He's using a teaching technique called hyperbole, intentional exaggeration to make a point. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Can you imagine physically hearing those words come out of Jesus' mouth? I'm sorry, what did he just say? To go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled, life meaning heaven, than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Point being, take sin very seriously. 
I'll just ask you this question because we're now short on time. Is there any sin that's really worth giving your life to where you would be eternally separated from God in the reality of an eternal hell that is really hot forever? Is there any sin in your life that would bring you so much pleasure now that it would be worth sacrificing your eternal destiny so that you could enjoy that momentary pleasure? The point being, Jesus makes it very clear. You would rather enter into life with one eye than to have perfect vision in hell. You would rather hobble into heaven than stand firmly on your two feet in hell. You would rather enter into heaven missing a hand than to have two hands wide open in hell. Take sin seriously. What sin in your life needs to be cut out? Maybe it's something that your eyes continue to look at. Maybe it's something your hands continue to click on. What he's talking about here is hands that lead to murder, lead to theft. What of your feet, where are your feet taking you? What sin just needs to be cut out, repented of? This is called radical amputation, meaning we just don't mess with it. Why? Because it's not that important. It's not worth it. If Jesus was as firm and as stern as this, please cut it out. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Whatever you have to do, take that sin so serious because the consequences are eternally significant. Hell is real, and it's forever. It's a separation from God. The last warning that Jesus gives to his disciples is a warning not to shrink back. First one was, don't lead people astray. The second one is, take sin very seriously. And the third one is, don't shrink back from suffering. Jesus continues to make clear that suffering will be the reality of our experience as Christians. Everyone, verse 49 and 50, will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it make salty be, make, make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, among yourselves, and be at peace with each other. This is um, Jesus' way of saying there will be times of suffering and persecution. Go through that for the purposes of being refined to look more and more like Jesus. And he asks a great question of if something has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And it says in verse 50, have salt in yourselves among yourselves is what Jesus is saying. You ever had dinner with someone and they said, pass the salt? This is what Jesus is talking about. Have relationship, table fellowship, community with people to sharpen you to call you out when you need to be called out. This is why life groups are such a big deal. Being in community with other people who will love you enough to say what needs to be said, when it needs to be said. Tonight, 
I hope, I know a lot has been said and a lot of verses were covered, but Jesus is, saw an argument taking place and the argument was, who's going to be the greatest? Jesus says, if you're going to be great, be very last. Change your position, and change your posture. And know that as you take the position of last and take the posture of servant, not just someone who serves, but someone who is a servant that has responsibilities. We serve all the children, the neglected in your life. And we have a responsibility not to lead them astray. And what causes us to lead people astray is sin. Take it seriously. Let me pray for us. And as we would continue in worship and shortly respond to God and just celebrating Jesus in communion, I just want you to sit and wrestle, what is God saying to you tonight? How are you supposed to respond to this? And my challenge in your response is if you have sin, repent and confess it. If you are a person who is consumed with wanting to be first, ask God to give you the grace and the heart and the mind, the resolve, the courage to say, I'm changing my, my posture my position, I am changing my posture. Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, tonight we would respond to you. That we would not seek the greatness that the world dangles out in front of us to be known, recognized, to be famous. That we would choose the greatness that Jesus has spoken of to be very last, and to be a servant. And I pray for each individual, but I pray that this would be a community where we would get that. We would get being very last and actually embrace that. We would get what it means not just to serve, but to be a servant. God, I pray for those who are being even convicted now, tonight, of just sin that's so private, so personal, that no one else in this world even might, not, might not even know about except you. God, I do pray there would be surgery taking place tonight, a radical amputation of cutting out that which causes us to stumble and which is causing us to lead others to stumble. God, let us be a people that tonight would respond to you and what your voice has been speaking into our hearts. I pray that in Jesus' name. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.